0: Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 8 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. Last week, we talked about Eileen Wuornos, a serial killer whose sexuality became part of a sensational media story about her killing spree. Who's our subject this week, Hugh?
1: This week, I want to talk about Morrissey. Um, I want to start this week's episode to talk a little bit about how this particular bad gay influenced me. I think it's fair to say I was an outsider as a teenager. I was a bit of an odd kid, the only gay person in my school, or openly gay person in my school, and I was subject to my fair share of bullying as a result. But I struggled to find role models outside of that in wider culture. This was during the years of Section 28, so I felt isolated and alone in my sexuality. But a lot of US and even British popular culture that offered different examples didn't really ring true to how I was. I wasn't particularly outgoing, I was bookish. But with that, the sort of sneering superiority that bookish kids who don't fit in can adopt as a defence mechanism. There seemed very few cultural figures who spoke about that combination of feeling disgusted with my abject, undesirable body, confused and driven half mad by the idea of sex misunderstood thanks to what I assumed was my superior intelligence, curious about obscure dead authors, hungry for escape, for recognition. Then one day I discovered the Smiths. In their music, and especially the lyrics of their lead singer, Morrissey, I found someone who turned all those aspects of my identity that had held me down or ostracized me into something that made them stand out and shine. Their fractured, jangly melodies, their screeching wails, the long, melancholy moans became the soundtrack to my late teenage years, the first sight of hope on a distant horizon. I don't mean this lightly, nor am I engaging in in exaggeration when I say that Morrissey spoke to me in a way nobody had spoken to me in my life. Life was quite hard for me at the time. My mother was ill and then she died, and I moved house and I felt terribly alone, an unwanted impediment to the happiness of others a happiness I thought I could never achieve myself and was suspicious of. One of the things that I think spoke to me so clearly was the landscape of Morrissey's world which was so similar to mine. I too lingered around cemetery gates reading lovesick poetry. I too walked home over iron railway bridges in the pissing rain. I too dreamt about you last night and fell out of bed twice. I was raised in the northwest of England. My mother was born in the same city as Morrissey, only six years before him. And my family were from the same dry Lancashire cultural background. I left my post-war comprehensive school and each morning I'd get the bus into Carlisle where I was studying at the art school. I spent many winter afternoons inside the old Coljugate school, a red brick Victorian uh, primary school that was being used by the art department as its print workshop. I drew pictures and illustrated them with his words. I caught the bus home falling asleep on its oxygen-deprived upper deck, the windows running with condensation passing through the semi-detached suburbs and then the sparse, windswept countryside on the way home, all the time listening to the Smiths on my jumping Discman, thinking about Morrissey's swinging gladioli, his open shirt, wondering if I'd ever get out, wondering if I could ever capture those moments of longing desire like he did, wondering if I'd be saddled with the same shame forever. Maybe, I thought, there's something noble in it. Morrissey, after all, makes it sound good. Morrissey was born Stephen Patrick Morrissey on the 22nd of May, 1959, into an Irish Catholic family who'd emigrated to the UK the year before from Dublin. He was born in Manchester, still a thriving industrial city at the time, and spent the first decade of his life living in Hume, a working class area in the centre of Manchester. Hume had been badly hit by the bombing raids in the Second World War, as it was located near the Ship Canal and docks, and so was undergoing a massive urban redevelopment at the time with the construction of Hume Crescent's, a series of high-density social housing blocks. Morrissey would write that his childhood home was, quote, "...streets upon streets upon streets upon streets. Like us, these streets will be left to their own destiny. Birds abstain from song in post-war industrial Manchester, while the 1960s will not swing, and where the locals are the opposite of worldly." End quote. The Morrisseys left Hume in 1970, moving to the King's Road in the slightly more leafy Stretford, just down the road. There they had a semi-detached and lived opposite Longford Park. After attending a Catholic primary school in Hume, he failed his 11-plus, so he was sent to St Mary's Technical Modern School. He hated his time there, and recounts in his autobiography the obsessions of the homosexualist PE teachers, who would ogle boys in the shower, including a teacher who inspected his naked body for scars. Quote, for the first time you consider yourself to be the prize or the quarry. Perhaps unsurprisingly, he wasn't popular at school and was a bit of a loner, and experienced violence from both other students and from teachers. He describes this as a process that inculcated him with shame and low self-esteem. This mirrored his experience at home, where he was beaten for discipline. His home life seems to not have been particularly happy. His parents rowed, and in 1976 they separated, with Morrissey staying at home with his mother. Talking about his childhood, he says, quote, It wasn't so much damaged as nothing at all. His mother was a librarian, and like mine, put a premium on the value of books and book learning. The young Stephen read voraciously, and was a particular fan of kitchen sink realism, the genre of post-war British literature film and theatre that focused on working class lives, from writers like Alan Sillito and Sheila Delaney. But it was music where he found his escape. And as a teenager, he became a devotee of the glam rock movement, including T-Rex and Roxy music. However, it was the New York Dolls who became his first major love. He said, quote, At my school, you had to be passionate about Bowie or Bolan. It had to be one or the other, never both. For me, it was the Dolls because I found traditional rock and rollers stupid, brainless, hypermachismo soup sellers. The Dolls are absolutely male, not in the least effeminate. Morrissey would famously go on to found their fan club in the UK. Age 17, Stephen left school and began working as a clerk for the Inland Revenue. He was still a lonely teen, mostly making friends through pen pals. One such pen pal who contacted him to discuss the New York Dolls was Bill Duffy, a young lad from Withenshaw, a town just outside Manchester. It was 1977, the height of the punk rock explosion, and Duffy was looking for a vocalist for his punk band, The Nosebleeds. Morrissey joined, and they did quite well, writing a number of songs together, and playing at the Manchester Polytechnic and the Ritz. But the band split up. Morrissey went on to join Duffy's next band, and they were on the verge of getting a deal, but it came to nothing. He'd established himself as a figure on the Manchester punk scene, however, and began his career as a freelance music writer, publishing with the Record Mirror, and even publishing a few books, one on the New York Dolls, and another on the actor James Dean. In 1978, Stephen had met a 14-year-old kid called Johnny at a Patti Smith gig. Four years later, Johnny, Johnny Marr, turned up at his house and asked him if he wanted to start a band with him. They hung out for the day. Johnny was impressed that Stephen had written a book on the New York Dolls and Morrissey was impressed that that Marr liked all the same bands. So the next day, he called him and they formed a band. Over the course of the next year, the band, who had called themselves The Smiths, recorded two demos. Uh, with tracks including Suffer Little Children, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, and What Difference Does It Make, and played some gigs, including at the newly opened Hacienda Club. Stephen decided he no longer wanted to be called Stephen, but to be known only by his surname, Morrissey. Morrissey had from the start a guiding hand in the aesthetic and image of the band. He veered the band away from the traditional machismo of British rock music, but also from the more flamboyant, queer, club kid aesthetic of the new romantics that was emerging at the same time. Instead, the Smiths dressed in relatively normal clothes, shirts and jeans, and Morrissey took lead in the development of their record design on their singles and albums, too. Featuring simple text, usually just the band's name and the name of the song or album, and printed in duotone, Morrissey chose photographs of 50s and 60s film stars, or icons of British post-war working class culture. The combinations are usually melancholy but also strangely subversive, For their first single, he chose an erotic 1950s shot of a naked man, Arse Exposed. In the early 1980s, this was a daring move for a rock band, especially one from working-class Manchester background, undermining the expected heterosexual machismo of rock bands at the time. This was followed by their second single, which featured a still of Jean Marais lying on the front, examining his reflection in a puddle from Jean Cocteau's film Orpheus. Other covers feature, um, male stars like James Dean, Alain Delon, and Joe D'Alessandro. The single, The Boy with a Thorn in His Side, features a particularly gay young Truman Capote. This aesthetic direction was 100% Morrissey. He later said that when he showed the rest of the band the Capote cover, one of them asked if it, him if it was Ernie Wise. <laughs> That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, he, and it was Truman Capote, after all, who said, uh, Have you ever heard the term killer fruit? It's a certain kind of queer who has Freon refrigerating his bloodstream, and that often goes through my head when I think about um, the choices
1: of people we make for this show. And, you know, Truman knew of what she spoke. His choice of aesthetics is a carefully observed and realized form of a sort of quiet camp, induced by an unmistakable queer, sad boy affect, but also one informed by a working-class northern background. His use of female icons betrays that strange mix of influences. The glamour of Candy Darling is matched by the glamour of Elsie Tanner from Corrie, or Viv Nicholson, the working-class woman who won a fortune on the pools in 1961. Over the next eight years, the Smiths released four studio albums, one live album and three compilations, as well as 19 singles. However, their partnership was never easy. Drummer Andy Rourke was briefly thrown out the band due to his alleged heroin use. Johnny Marr was getting increasingly overworked and exhausted and finding refuge at the bottom of the bottle. Battles with record labels ensued, but the main tension was between Morrissey and his increasingly difficult and belligerent character, and the rest of the band, especially Marr who was the musical engine behind the Smiths. In 1987, they split. It had been a brief but spectacular career for the band, whose music has come to personify the troubled middle of the decade. Morrissey in particular had become a major cultural figure, a unique and idiosyncratic character who seemed to eschew the, uh, both the mainstream Thatcherite greed good energy of the decade, but also the main counterculture. Morrissey was not scared of making controversial political statements, many of them extremely admirable, that took on the conservative government at the time. After releasing his first solo album, *Viva Hate, in 1988, which includes the track about Th- uh, about Thatcher called Margaret on the Guillotine, he said that the track wasn't intended as controversial for its own sake, but was uh, but was simply a sincere declaration of the fact that he'd like Thatcher to die, quote, instantly. Hmm. He also spoke out against uh, the Queen, saying, quote, Actually, I despise royalty. I always have done. It's fairy story nonsense. The very idea of their existence in these days when people are dying daily because they don't have enough money to operate one's radiator in the house, to me is immoral. As far as I can see, money spent on royalty is money burnt. It's a false devotion anyway. I think it's fascist and very, very cruel. To me, there's something dramatically ugly about a person who can wear a dress for £6,000 when at the same time there are people who can't afford to eat. When she puts on that dress for £6,000, the statement she's making to the nation is, I am the fantastically gifted royalty, and you are the snivelling peasants. The very idea that people would be interested in the facts about this dress is massively insulting to the human race, end quote. Okay, so perhaps this is an easy target for a, a rock singer, but he also spoke out, rightly in my opinion, um, against the way the huge charity event, Band-Aid, made a structural problem into an issue of personal charity despite the fact that Band-Aid was a hugely popular mass media event at the time. Remember, this was back when people still liked Bono. Hmm. Uh, He said at the time, quote, The whole implication was to save these people in Ethiopia, but who were they they asking to save them? Some 13-year-old girl in Wigan. People like Thatcher and the Royals could solve the Ethiopian problem in 10 seconds, but Band-Aid shied away from saying that. For heaven's sake, it was almost directly aimed at unemployed people. He was right, And yet, when it came to key political battlegrounds of the 1980s, sexuality, Morrissey took a different position. This was probably the first time openly gay musicians could still maintain a career whilst being out, although, of course, it still damaged their sales. But most didn't. Throughout the 1980s, Elton John, George Michael, and even Freddie Mercury were still ostensibly in the closet. They may have queer-coded themselves, but always within the limits of deniability. Open acknowledgement of homosexuality limited gay gay artists and bands such as Bronski Beat Frankie Goes to Hollywood and the Pet Shop Boys who might otherwise have had a larger audience had they compromised on their content and lyrics many of those artists recognizing the lack of queer representation made moves to discuss sexuality and sexual subcultures in their music from Bronski Beat's touching small town boy about a lad from the provinces realizing his sexuality and moving to the city to sort of realize himself To Frankie Goes to Hollywood's barnstorming anthem to kink and piss sex, relax. Morrissey, however, took a different tack. Throughout the 1980s, he professed to being celibate, and refused any description of his sexual orientation, saying, "'I don't recognise such terms as heterosexuality, homosexuality, bisexuality, and I think it's important that someone in pop music use like that. These words do great damage,' They confuse people and they make people feel unhappy, so I want to do away with them. End quote. Perhaps the inability to, uh, or unwillingness to inhabit a sexual identity comfortably uh, and instead to wrestle publicly, publicly with the feelings of objection and self-loathing that come out in much of the Smiths' music is important in a cultural figure. It's not like Morrissey's lyrics and the aesthetics of the Smiths in general didn't provide an entire new queer register for young fans at the time. Or that, like other musicians, he moved away into a realm of heterosexual deniability. After all, their first single featured a naked naked male arse on the cover, and the lyrics... Hand in glove, the sun shines out of our behinds. No, it's not like any other love. This one is different because it's us. Hand in glove, we can go where we please. And everything depends on how near you stand to me. And if the people stare, then the people stare. Oh, I really don't know, and I really don't care. Or, for example, in I Know It's Over which tackles the complex emotions of gay crushes, of struggling to understand and experiment while still cloaked in secrecy and social stigma. I know it's over, and it never really began, but in my heart it was so real. Love is natural and real, but not for such as you and I, my love. In There Isn't Light That Never Goes Out, there's a passage that could be read pretty clearly by anyone who's faced ostracization for their sexuality, and yet hasn't found themselves in a position of either physical or emotional security who is still stretching for the human contact that as teens we both need and cannot ask for. Driving in your car, oh please don't drop me home, because it's not my home, it's their home, and I'm welcome no more. And in the darkened underpass, I thought, oh god, my chance has come at last. But then a strange fear gripped me, and I just couldn't ask. It seems to me personally that this conflicted attitude, not just towards a prescribed uh, sexual identity, but towards sexual desire per se, is a valuable subject position one that books against the packaged and confident sexuality of in-pop culture that can be so alienating for awkward teens, even or especially faggots like me. It was exactly this contrast between uh, between his arrogant and some would say pretentious intellectual superiority and his abject, doubting sexual confusion that appealed to me as a teenager. He spoke to me when nobody else could. So despite, or perhaps because of his refusal to name it, I think there's something both interesting, admirable, that we might perhaps even say is queer about the stance that he took. It wasn't that he refused to take a political position on issues around sexuality. After all, he spoke out against against Section 28, the Tories' rabidly homophobic legislation, aimed at denying LGBTQ children any chance of um, an education or even acknowledgement of their sexual orientation in schools, saying it, quote, embodies Thatcher's very nature and her quite natural hatred. That sexuality began to find a more confident voice drawn from homosexual subcultures in his second solo album, Bona Drag, which took strong influences from and referenced the Polari gay cant slang that was spoken between queer men in London throughout the 20th century. Bona Drag means nice outfit. Indeed, the track Piccadilly Polari, which... Uh, it makes, uh, perhaps, uh, Morrissey's most explicit references to homosexuality at this point in his career, with the lyrics The Piccadilly Polari was just silly slang, Between me and the boys in my gang. So bona tavade o oh you, Your lovely eek and your lovely rear. The Piccadilly Polari was just silly slang, Between me and the boys in my gang. Exchanging Polari, you wouldn't understand, Good sons like you never do. However, as Morrissey began his solo career, his focus on working class cultures of masculinity as the focus of his songs began to turn towards other areas, notably the concerns and aesthetics of the far right. That was especially pronounced with the release of his 1992 album, Your Arsenal. Before I go any further, I'd just like to say here that in the late 2000s, Morrissey sued the British music magazine NME, and the publisher was forced to apologise and say, quote, We do not believe Morrissey is a racist. I'll also point out that writing for the Guardian in 2007 about the case, Morrissey wrote, quote, I abhor racism and oppression or cruelty of any kind and will not let this pass without being absolutely clear and emphatic with regard to what my position is. Racism is beyond common sense, and I believe it has no place in our society, end quote. I'll also point out that a decade later in 2019, he said, quote, The word is meaningless now. Everyone ultimately prefers their own race. Does this make everyone racist? end quote it makes someone racist well i, I won't say who because of yeah. this legal history but it does i mean um, um yeah i'll i'll be bearing in mind this legal history as i discuss morrissey's career from this point on and as listeners i hope you bear in mind that i am bearing it in mind uh, in what i say but if you remember back to our Nicky Crane episode, uh, last season, you'll remember that pop music during the 80s was a battleground before, uh, between the far right and anti racism campaigners. From the very start of Morrissey's solo career in 1988, various commentators began to draw attention to, um, racially provocative lyrics within his music, lyrics that frequently used Asian people, um, as their outsider characters. In Asian Rut from the album Kill Uncle in 1991, a character referred to simply as Tooled Up Asian Boy, has, quote, come to take revenge for the cruel cold killing of his very best friend. His song, Bengalian Platforms, from his first solo album, Viva Hate, in 1988, features a sort of young Bengali character who is presumably into glam rock culture. It features the lyrics, Bengalian Platforms, he only wants to embrace your culture and to be your friend forever, forever. Bengali, Bengali, oh, shelve your Western plans and understand that life is hard enough when you belong here. Mm. Although Asian commentators had drawn attention to this, it wasn't until 1992 and the release of Your Arsenal, with its sort of butcher, more aggressive aesthetic, that wider attention uh, was paid towards Morrissey's interest in race relations, shall we say. A track on Your Arsenal entitled The National Front Disco features the lyrics... But David, we wonder, we wonder if the thunder is ever really going to begin, begin, begin. Your mom says, I've lost my boy, but she should know now why you've gone. Because again and again, you've explained you've gone to the National Front Disco because you want the day to come sooner when you've settled the score.
0: I mean, in addition to being uh, troubling in their content, it's also just such bad lyrics, especially compared to the early ones. Like, ugh.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, I would agree. I was never really a fan of his solo stuff. Anyway, as we discussed in that episode on Nicky Crane, concerts, and especially outdoor festivals, were a huge site of contention between recruiting fascists and anti-fascists in the 80s and early 90s. In the summer of 1992, Morrissey appeared at Madstock Festival in Finsbury Park in London. He appeared at the festival and performed the National Front Disco while draped in the Union Jack. Madstock was a festival organised by the British scar band Madness, Uh, while, according to the Guardian writer Tim Jones, quote, "...it was done in the knowledge that the Madness crowd contained a significant fascist skinhead element," end quote. There was mainstream discussion of this at the time, but nowhere near enough given the degree of the provocation and the serious implications. Enemy's only black writer at the time, Dele Fedele, wrote a piece about those implications, and as a result, Morrissey refused to talk to the paper for another decade. But I thought that all of these people just wanted to have free speech. Yeah. The British, British indie band Corner Shop, uh, which was fronted by the British Asian singer uh, tajinda Singh and his brother Avtar, burnt a Morrissey poster outside the EMI off- London offices. Later, the band wrote, quote, We were compelled to burn mo- posters of Morrissey at our gigs and also outside of his EMI r- record label to stage against Morrissey's flamboyant racist overtones. He himself was a fully formed thirty three years of age, so we were surprised and disappointed at his quick succession of far-right volleys, such as using Richard Allen's skinhead imagery to be draped in uh, to be draped in a, a union jack at a time when far-right sentiment was on the rise, and blacks and Asians were being attacked and murdered. He was such an influential artist that we ne- needed to try and stamp it out, and it was further compounded because he never responded to a discussion about far right wingism as he does today uh, to gentlete con- continued. Quote, uh, it was a move because the papers were fucking around, pussyfooting around the issue and using it to sell papers and putting his picture on the front page and leaving it at that. I don't think you can do that. Of course, they're right. And despite this occurring at a peak in far right activity and during the rise of the BMP as an organized fascist party, Marcy's career continued unimpeded. A large part of that surely must come down to the limited pool from which the British media is drawn. If the country's most important music magazine of the time only had one person of colour on its writing staff, how could concerns like that face down a fandom as devoted as Morrissey's? There's always been a strain of thought that said that Morrissey's lyrics were at most provocations using the voice of a character. That Morrissey wasn't racist, he just wrote about racist characters sometimes using their voice. According to his biographer David Brett, quote, The song was a classic case of shooting the messenger for one does not have to delve too deeply into the lyrics to work out that the narrator is anti-racist. I'm not really so sure about that. Um, Brett's book was published in 2004, and I'd be interested as to whether he still stands by his contention in the light of what's followed. But it wasn't until 2007 that the issue really flared up again. By this point, Morrissey had been living in LA for a decade, over a decade, um, until uh, in 2004 he made a comeback giving his first TV interview for 17 years. In 2007, he met with Tim Jones, writing for NME, to produce a puff piece uh, written to accompany a seven-inch record on a magazine cover. However, after an uneventful interview, Jones asked uh, asked Morrissey whether he'd consider living in the UK again, to which he responded, saying, Also, with the issue of immigration, it's very difficult because, although I don't have anything against people from other countries... The higher the influx into England, the more British identity it disappears. So the price is enormous. If you travel to Germany, it's still absolutely German. If you travel to Sweden, it still has a Swedish identity. But travel to England, and you have no idea where you are. Yeah. Here again, you see uh, Morrissey's obsession with a certain chauvinistic idea of English or British national culture coming in. Um, And what he was sort of posing as perhaps an underdog position against US pop culture in the 1980s that was sentimental even at that point, becomes used again in a much more malign sentimental positioning. Asked whether there's some sort of conflict there, given his own family's status as Irish migrants, he continued, quote, "'Yes, but it's different now, because the gates are flooded, and anybody can have access to England and join in. You have to be sensible about everything in life. You can't say, "'Everybody come into my house, sit on the bed, have what you like.'" do what you like, it wouldn't work, end quote. According to Jones, he also said that, quote, it seems to me that England was thrown away and that in Knightsbridge, a district in central London, quote, you'll hear every accent under the sun apart from the British accent. There is no British accent, but there we go. Jones reported that uh, although fellow music journalists questioned his account of events, he did get support from musicians, including Billy Bragg, and from the anti-racist organisation Love Music Hate Racism, that organisational support, he says, dried up when Love Hate Me, Love Music Hate Racism received a twenty-eight thousand pound donation from Morrissey. The legal battle dragged on for another five years until Enemy formally apologised for having suggested that his comments might have been racist. Can you get sued for saying? Let's hope not. <laughs> However, Morrissey has continued to make similar comments ever since.
0: Comments that I might describe as ra- rather problematic. <laughs>
1: rather problematic, yeah. In 2010... Spe- rather, rather problematic, of course, to my ears only. Yeah. Um, you know. Well, he did say himself, racism doesn't mean anything anymore, so... Uh, yeah. Anyway. In 2010, speaking to the poet Simon Armitage and The Guardian about Chinese animal welfare standards... Uh, Morrissey, of course, uh, is famously a diehard vegan and a supporter of Peter. Uh, said, Quote, absolutely horrific. You can't help but feel that the Chinese are a subspecies. I mean, you absolutely can help but feel that if you're not. <clears throat> I, I, I help but feel that yeah. every day. In an interview with Der Spiegel in 2017, he called Germany the rape capital of Europe. And that's, of course, referring to uh, – so in the aftermath of the
0: 2015 uh, decision to admit uh, or rather to not send back the million people who had walked uh, to Germany uh, from Syria fleeing the uh, war there, uh, there were a series of um, attacks, namely one at the uh, main railway station in Cologne that were really turned by far-right politicians and the media into this um, – spectacle of arguing that these new migrants were somehow incompatible with German culture. Um, you know, and in fact, uh, violent crime in Germany is not particularly high by any meaningful standard. I would be shocked to think that there were many cities uh, safer than, for example, Berlin where I live on kind of a day to day basis as you kind of move around. So uh, that's a really, um, Inaccurate and r- rather inaccurate statement.
1: It's a far right trope. It, a is, a, it, it trope.
0: is a far right trope, and 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 uh, some people have often said that uh, one of the possible aspects of the new far right is making statements which are r- r- um, r- racially charged.
1: Is a thing that some people have said, but yeah. that I am not saying. Um, anyway, because, then in a. In an interview on his own fan site, Morrissey Central, in 2018, he said, quote, London is debased. The mayor of London, uh, who is Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London tells us about neighbourhood policing. What is policing? He tells us London is an amazing city. What is amazing? This is the mayor of London, and he cannot talk properly. I saw an interview where he was discussing mental health, and he repeatedly said, "mental." He could not say the words mental health. The mayor of London, Civilization is over. And then he said, London is second only to Bangladesh for acid attacks. All of the attacks are non-white, and so they cannot be truthfully addressed by the British government or the Met Police or the BBC because of political correctness. What this means is that the perpetrator is considered to be as much a victim as the actual victim. We live in the age of atrocity. End quote.
0: Well, that's r- r- remarkably inaccurate. Um, Hugh, are the uh, are, uh, acid attacks in London uh, exclusively committed by
1: people who are not white? Is that true? Um, not as far as I'm aware. Uh, as I said, all these points are drawn straight from the far right handbook for British politics in the 2010s. So it came as no surprise when in 2019, Morrissey announced he was a supporter of For Britain, a British far right party led by Anne Marie waters that split from the hard-right UKIP uh, after the uh, UKIP's former leader Nigel Farage called her faction Nazis and racists. So that's to the far right of Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage thinks you're a racist. There's something happening. They've since received the support of the former leader of the far-right street movement, the English Defence League, uh, Tommy Robinson, the British shock jock Katie Hopkins, and the American anti-Muslim author Robert Spencer. He had to appear at a party conference via video link, having been banned from the UK. Two members of the party were ejected after having been linked to the prescribed neo-Nazi terrorist cell, National Action. Morrissey announced his support, saying, quote, "There is only one British political party that can safeguard our security. That party is for Britain. For Britain is the bulldog breed that will never surrender." End quote. Last year, appearing on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon in the US, Morrissey wore a pin badge with the For Britain logo, which probably didn't mean anything to the American viewers, but was a very clear indication to British viewers of where he stands.
0: So um, while I'm not going to say anything about my beliefs about Morrissey's personal beliefs, I will say that we can establish through a dispassionate fact that Morey, Morrissey is a supporter of a political party that was deemed racist by Nigel Farage. As himself a person who has been deemed often racist by people including me.
1: i mm-hmm. I'm sure that's acceptable. Your honor. Um it's impossible to ignore Morrissey's political positions and literally nothing could possibly excuse them. But what I am curious about is how as a teenager I allowed myself to to ignore them. Um granted it's like the worst of these political positions hadn't been spoken when I was a teenager um which was ending in you know 2005. But perhaps in that sort of melancholy obsession with a very particular kind of Englishness, um, the roots were already there. And perhaps it was that combination of outsider and contrarian uh, that he clearly still believes he inhabits that attracted me in the first place. I don't want to judge my teenage self too harshly, but there is, of course, a privilege I had without knowing it. Um, If I were a queer Asian kid growing up in a suburb, I doubt I could have so easily ignored those earlier uh, those early statements or lyrics. Although that said, Suktav Sandhu, the fantastic author who was um, raised in an Asian household in Gloucester and a one-time fan of the myth, says that parts of Morrissey's world spoke to his, writing, quote, Austerity, deferral, unrequitedness. My parents, like many immigrants, assumed this was their lot. They also imparted these values to me. I was most myself when I was yearning, or as Morrissey would later claim, I'm only attracted to things I can never become or get. There was, a sh- there was surely a sexual element to this ghost, skinny boy yearning, one which I, perhaps since pre-adolescence for a future in which there would be no girlfriends, only an arranged marriage, was acutely aware. End quote. Listening back to Smith's songs now, because uh, in all honesty I was never really a fan of his solo work, it's clear why so many people refer to a time in their life where they had a Morrissey or Smith's phase. There's something eternally teenage in his attitude. Alongside the dry wit and the yearning, this idea that your outsider position, this alienation from the world can only be the consequence of your superior intellect and the dull conformism of others. At its core, I think that part of Morrissey that speaks so strongly to weird teenagers comes from both a lack of intellectual and emotional curiosity and a defensive lack of empathy that most of us, thank God, grow out of. I don't think Morrissey ever has. We're on season three of our show, and we can't
0: believe how much support we get from our listeners. Thank you so much to those of you who already support our Patreon.
1: This season, we've launched a new website at badgazepod.com. There you can find our back catalogue of episodes, a link to support us on Patreon, and t-shirts. Beautiful t-shirts
0: that say Bad Gaze" or Evil Twink Energy and Black on White or White on Black. They cost 20 euros plus shipping, and 2 euros from each purchase goes to The Outside Project, a grassroots group that is organised to collectively run community LGBTIQ crisis and homeless shelter and community centre, the first of its kind in the UK.
1: And for our Patreon donors, we're adding new levels. For $5 a month, we'll send you our monthly newsletter of recommended reading, and high levels get free shirts.
0: Thanks so much for your support! Again, all that good stuff, Patreon, T-shirts episode archive is available at badgazepod.com and linked in the show notes. That's badgazepod.com. Well thank you Hugh. Um I mean and I, I know you agree with me here and I know I, but just to say you know these as much as I think you've really eloquently outlined the way in which um the origins of or maybe there's a kind of sentimentality uh, in Smith's lyrics that then grows into this uh, these political views that I just avoided using a particular word to describe, um, only for legal reasons, dear listener, um, that maybe, uh, that has a particular kind of appeal or, or a similar origin to the feelings of these kind of confused teen self-centered, isolated feelings. But, you know, at this point, this guy's 60 years old. And I think if you're 60 years old and you appear on television wearing a, uh, political badge of for Britain, um, those are your expressed political views. And, uh, You should have them described um, and uh, you bear responsibility for them. Yeah. I mean, it's also just another, um, you know, the fact that we even have to dance around uh, this particular word that. I really want to use but we want to be careful about using because of this person's litigiousness um, you know we live in a time when uh, part of the kind of rhetorical strategy of the far right and you even hear it there in uh, Morrissey's uh, comments about the mayor of London you know no one can tell the truth about this crime because the BBC and everybody they can't you know it has to be political correctness and it makes the victims and blah 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 you know I think the ultimate um, example of uh, you know a wilting snowflake unable to hear criticism and who's obsessed with political correctness is somebody who uh, holds independent media under the threat of lawsuits um, when they're used, u- described using uh, adjectives that they don't enjoy. Um, so I'll just leave that there. Um, moving on, uh, I think there's something really interesting uh, or rather really disturbing. I mean, there's, a, there's a crisis of masculinity uh, in a lot of different parts of the West that's been kind of talked about in the last... 20 or 30 years or so. And there's a lot of writing and thinking about how these crises of masculinity, um, how whether people are talking about changing uh, family structures or um, a kind of move away from post-war Fordism in which the male wage was the family wage has supposedly left all of these men without uh, – without a place or without a home or what have you. And I, I think the the conservative um, and even the far-right explanations for this crisis of masculinity tend to blame feminism and um, feminism mostly for this. Um, and maybe more structural explanations would talk about um, this, as I said, uh, you know, the moves away from Fordism, the crisis of the family wage, stuff like that. Um, but when that is spoken about, it's almost always spoken about in terms of straight men, um, I mean, it's often sort of assumed, right, that gay men are immune from this crisis of masculinity or maybe are a symptom of this crisis of masculinity. You know, we think about, uh, incels, uh, sort of the latest kind of, uh, teen, self-obsessed, actually, I'm the one who's special and everyone else is fucked up and awful, um, identification, right And of course in the incels case it's it's uh, tinged with racism and also violent misogyny, right um, Often murderous misogyny, mass murderous misogyny. Uh, but again, that's always considered uh, or at least sort of spoken about as a straight, phenomenon. Um and so I think it's really interesting that you've pointed out here this way in which Morrissey is giving this particular kind of teenage sentimental crisis of masculinity, actually I'm the one who's smarter than all the rest of you, this quite particularly queered voice. Does that do you understand what I'm what what I'm getting at here? Yeah, I agree. I think I think there's and, and actually a foundational voice. Sorry, I mean you know like a foundational voice of this of this kind of masculinity uh, crisis because so many people, um, as you spoke about, go through this moment in their life with this music in their ears.
1: Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's that's a fair point. I think that's an element to that. There, I I I wonder what terrible um, political uh, uh, avenue I'd be dragged down if I was. Um, a fifteen or sixteen-year-old boy with the same feelings in the same environment now, but with his access to the internet in in a way that didn't exist when I was a teenager. Um, I mean, there was the internet, but it wasn't social media and stuff.
0: And it wasn't YouTube offering you fucking fascist videos every time you watch three things. Is it trying to get you to watch something that's about how the you know West is being
1: dragged down by the goddamn Jews? You know. Yeah. Um. And so yeah my my interpretation of morrissey and the smiths lyrics having having that sort of um sentimental self-indulgent superiority that intellectual superiority um is is i think looking back just my personal experience of like why i was attracted to it i think there were like other aspects that i think for other people had like stronger forms or stronger pull um but i think it's like important to, not, to acknowledge that there there can be a teenage um, self-importance and superiority that comes from basically a, maybe a lack of exposure and an isolation and that isolation, that social isolation can really sort of encourage that, um, that lack of empathy as well. Um, Which I know, I mean, like it's, it's, Fucking shit being a teenager and especially um being a being a teenager doesn't really fit in uh, um from, from my experience at least. So I don't think you can judge teenagers too hard harshly for that, but as you said, like this is a six-year-old man and um the mindset uh that was so attractive to me as a teenager, when I now look at, at it, even without the um political statements, but just looking at the mindset behind the political statements seems um is really off putting for me now to, to look at with the political statements. Um, it becomes something more serious. And I don't want to sort of say that the tragedy of Morrissey's life is that somebody who I loved as a teenager and got so much from, um, has now been taken away from me. This isn't, this isn't like when, you know, those people who complain, oh, I can't even watch this anymore because the the terrible thing that the person who wrote it did or whatever, like that's not the problem. The problem is the behavior and the attitudes, um, regarding the statements he's making and the effect that it has on the people who are subject to the violence that is the end result of people in public making those statements without being held to account for them. Um, but I'm just saying like, I see, I see within that a, uh, <clears throat> I see within that a, a, a cause that relates back to like what made, makes um, his lyrics attractive for people. And
0: it's also just such a boring statement standard position to be posing as an outsider but then to be making these statements about immigration that are basically quote for quote word for word uh come from arise from uh, the most powerful people in british society right this is the exact line on immigration that appears in the murdoch press this is the exact line on immigration that um the tories are taking since uh since well you would know better than i but since i can remember being aware of british politics um, this is a time when labor is saying that they need to be tough on immigration. Uh, this is a time when in the past couple of years, there's the uh, awful uh, deportation of members of the Windrush generation. Uh, this is the time of Skype families. This is, I mean, literally today, um Boris Johnson, uh, current prime minister of the UK and Thatcherite wright twat and, uh, you know, Eton, Oxford, upper class British um, fucker. Right? Who's never, uh, had a day in his life where something more difficult happened than the butler bringing an improperly cooked egg, uh, announced a new immigration policy, uh, this points based immigration policy, the same as Australia, um, a racist immigration policy. Um, and so, you know, you're not, you're not an outsider if you support that. You're not a brave truth teller. Um, I also – I mean it's important to note when we're we're thinking about this question of teenagers and young people in the far right, I mean the the vast majority of young people now, uh, thankfully, um, are finding political expression on a resurgent left. I mean the overwhelming majority of British voters uh, under the age of 49, I believe, voted for – the Labour Party in 2019 on probably one of its most explicitly anti-racist manifestos in its history, although certainly a manifesto that had many room, much room for improvement on those issues, I'm sure. Um, but those people who are uh, potentially being attracted to the far right are virtually all male um, and virtually all white. And I, I think it's those people we're starting to think about the ways in which that Uh, attraction can take queer form right that that attraction um can actually begin or come out of a way of seeing or a way of feeling um that can also that is also capacious enough to include uh, photos of jean marais is Mm. important to think about and uh disturbing
1: yeah and just also on the sort of this strange embrace he's made of um of a sort of sentimental englishness i think that also comes out of this um crisis of englishness that's happening or this crisis of identity for for england that's happening that's happened kind of since the um the end of uh of the british empire which alex niven uh, the author alex niven who writes very uh very well and very movingly about um uh, english identity especially in the north sort of describes as um that England lent its identity to Great Britain during the process of um, imperialism and colonization. And as the empire collapsed, it, it, and and the uh, constituent countries of the United Kingdom started to develop their own independent, redevelop and reassert their own independent identities, such as Scotland and Wales, um, England was left in this sort of hole. And that there's, there is like a resurgent, Far right movement around the idea of Englishness and English national identity and English, uh, the idea of an English parliament. Um, but also the ideas, some of the ideas that Morrissey is talking about in terms of his, th- this, um, defence of an eng- specifically English identity as opposed to a British one. Um, and that already in the core of a lot of his music and the visuals around it from the very earliest days. This is uh, extremely like English working class. No, no, not working class, extremely English identity that is inflected with both Northern and working class aspects to it. That, um, those ideas are also having, um, have, have been pushed for, for most of my, my life, um, kind of since the rise of the BNP in the 1990s, um, by the center. Uh, The idea of, or even the left, the centre left, this idea that's going, that you have to push a idea of progressive patriotism, that England, that that we should be proud of Englishness because Englishness is tolerance, or Brit, and Britishness is tolerance, and it's, um, the NHS, and it's, uh, pulling together, and, these sort of things, you know, complete nonsense. Keep like, calm and carry on. I mean, that whole marketing of, of Cool Britannia and of kind of the the British uh, World War II response. Even in the US, it's all over the place. Yeah, but even on the left, this idea that, that somehow you'd be able to sneak in socialism through disguising it as Englishness, because uh, uh, has just been so destructive towards um, uh, uh, politics in the UK, because you just it's just playing the same song the same same tunes to the same songbook that the far right use. You can't really I don't think you can really inhabit that. And actually what Alex Niven writes so well about is the idea that actually England needs to reimagine itself in terms of regionalism, uh what the different regions have in common and decentralizing it from this sort of uh London centred or southeast centred um brain drain slash wealth trap slash um you know like the th- there's no he talks about there's no um there's very little regional reporting anymore in local papers and et cetera, et cetera. You know, we, we need to like, he's saying we need to like reestablish the idea of different aspects of English regionalism uh, in order to develop a, a sort of modernist, anti-national socialist agenda. Um so that's, that's a, a slight rant, but I think Mo- Morrissey's lyrics really contain within it a lot of those same sentimental ideas of Englishness that bear kind of no relationship towards actual English history um, and are used against discussing the actual class relations of England that have produced this terrible situation that England is in at the moment.
0: Well, I'm not going to uh, ask us to uh, determine whether Morrissey is bad or not or gay or not because um, we don't want to get sued. So instead, we will ask our listeners to draw their own conclusions on those questions based on the evidence that we have attempted to provide. Uh, And I will ask you, Hugh, if you wouldn't mind uh, letting us know the sources that you've used to research this episode and that people can read more about if they want to learn
1: more about Morrissey and his um, record. Well, the sources for discussing most of his life come from his biographies and autobiography. But I have to give a bit of a warning that they tend to be written by fans um, and often in a sort of style that is slightly fawning and maybe lacks a little criticality around some of his positions. Having said that, these are the books I used. Um, autobiography by Morrissey. That also needs a sort of warning for his prose style. Um Morris- are you that you had to read out of like that? <laughs> Morrissey, Scandal and Passion by David Brett. Mozipedia, the encyclopedia of Morrissey and the Smiths by Simon Goddard and saint morrissey a portrait of this charming man by an alarming fan by mark simpson and then also there's a whole bunch of um online articles that are much more critical and kind of better which we'll put in the show notes because they have long urls great
0: um so thank you so much for listening to this week's episode our twitter is at badgayspod you
1: can follow me on twitter at ben Writes things and you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy or subscribe to my newsletter, Hugh.substack.com. See you next week with more tales of bad gays.
0: Bye. Bad 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 bad